everyone. Welcome back to the Earth on Survival Guide, podcast number 51. We're on the back half of the first century of podcast here. Uh, this is a podcast, of course, for all disciplines, paths, players, game masters, enthusiasts like Josh and myself. I am Dan. With me, of course, is Josh. Hello, everybody. And on today's podcast, it's an all-email palooza, I think number three or four. I forget. We've, I kind of lost count, really. I've kind of one about every 10 or so. And on today's podcast, we'll be handling all things quizzical and quixotic, because we have a bunch of randomized questions from the last few podcasts we finally got uh, questions on. So, uh, but Josh has a correction to begin with from, last, from two podcasts ago on our deep dive yes. of the gauntlet. I posted this in the show notes. I posted this in the Twitter thread and in the comment um, on Facebook when I posted about it, uh, when we were talking about body control, uh, the talent that gauntlets get it for a circle, I said that it doesn't have a bonus like claw shape does. Technically true. It does not have a clone bonus <laughs> like claw shape does. It have its, has its own bonus that is not included in the little stat block, which is why I missed it because original flavor body control from back in first edition did not have a bonus, but it actually does have a bonus that is equal to the one handed size limit of the adept using the talent which is to say for windlings, it's only one for most other name givers. It's three and for uh, trolls and obsidian, it's four. So it actually is more effective and, and it scales differently based on the, uh, the person using it. That is included in the rules text for the talent. So it is there. It's just because it's variable. There's nothing to flag that in the stat block step information and so I overlooked it. It happens. That's why we write stuff down. So it can be. Well, people were very, people <laughs> were very quick to point out that I was wrong. It happens. So. You're human. Yeah, it happens. It's loud. Of course. <laughs> Again, that's why we write stuff down. So we have proof uh, that Josh is occasionally wrong. Uh, I'm just kidding. So since we're going to answer nothing but emails today on today's podcast, if you have any questions for us yourself on anything you've heard at all uh, around the game or anything we've discussed in previous uh, episodes, feel free to contact us at edsgpodcast at gmail.com. On to Nick. Greetings! I have just listened to episode 27. Yeah, I know, I'm still a little playing catch-up to say nothing. I still need to read all the, all the rule books. Where you discuss downtime and training. Was it really 20, episode 27? Have we done 24 between that and now? I can't believe it. Um, Quite possibly. So Nick, Nick had some thoughts. Why should training new ranks and skills and talents require downtime, especially if the character has been actively using that skill? Sure, require training and downtime for new skills, talents, or ones not actively being used or used lightly. Yes, such a system would very be very crunchy and require more bookkeeping, which FASA seems to be currently allergic to, but it's not necessarily a foreign idea for a game from FASA. Well... The original FASA. While it has been over 25 years since I looked at it, the rules for the Star Trek RPG published by FASA relied on skill use for determining skill advancement. So assuming you are not adamantly opposed to such an idea from a game balance perspective, what would such a downtime system look like to you? Thanks, Nick. Correctly. It is why does... Why should training new advancing... skills and talents require downtime? Especially if they've been actively um, using those. Yeah, because that's what was done in first edition. I don't know. Like there was some I, I know that in first edition training skills took time and, and required training and whatnot. Yeah. So that's not anything new to to the game, I think. And this is largely just kind of looking at at the way things were in terms of how all sorts of 
downtime actions took time. It was in part to differentiate between talents and skills, which is to say that talents are able to be advanced much more quickly than skills. If you don't have that downtime requirement, Mm -hmm. some of the difference between talents and skills is removed there. I mean, you still have the the cost differential. You've still got the fact that for for many skills, they aren't necessarily quite as effective as the talent. But I don't think there's necessarily anything game balance breaking about being more flexible with letting your player characters buy skills whenever it seems appropriate. I would probably look to... Well, it depends on what you're looking for. Fair. Part of the reason that the that the skill training and practice time thing is the way that it is, is as a nod to authenticity, just in terms of that, if the idea that a skill rank of 10 is the pinnacle of normal progression, right? That that's sort of the master, that's the highest, that's the most that a non-magical practitioner can achieve in yeah. being able to do something. That is something that should take time. And if you take the training times and the required sort of practice times, that intervening time before you can train it up some more, Mm -hmm. I think it adds up to be something like if you do nothing but train the skill and start training for the next rank as soon as you are able, it's something like between five and six years in game time to go from from rank zero up to to maximum rank. Mm -hmm. And so it, it is... Looking at the idea that there is some semblance of uh, simulation or authenticity to it being a real place, there have been some attempts to scale back from that a, a little bit in 4th edition, but that skill training time is is still there as kind of a, of a nod to the difference between talents and skills. Picking up the first couple of ranks of a skill isn't something that's particularly difficult or, or time-consuming or expensive, particularly once you've got a few circles under your belt. Sure. But there is still a notable difference between the, the talent and the skill, setting aside karma and sometimes improved effects and various things like that. Agreed. Yeah, I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with letting characters buy skills if they have them and have been using them through the course of the game, if it's something that comes up. I know, for example, in the um, Legends of, of Earthdawn podcast, the actual play game, yeah, we have not been like super hardcore about exactly tracking how much downtime we're actually using and stuff like that. Yeah. It's more like, okay, we've just completed an arc. We've got a whole chunk of legend points. Go ahead and spend them. And like, that's however much time it takes to do it. Yeah, because you're trying to get two and three things done at the same time. So I remember Cliff was like, yeah, you got you guys have a month before you leave town. Go ahead and do whatever you need to get done because yeah. it's however much time your character can. I mean, you still have to eat. <laughs> you still got to get clean. You know, you still have to do some other things that you can't just do this 24 hours a day and say, I learned this new skill and I'm a master at it in three days. You know, that's not, I can't say realistic. You know, most of the game is based upon a magical premise, but a skill is an unmagical based thing. And you can't just read a cookbook and be a master chef right off the bat. You have to put right. some time and effort and muscle memory behind it. So, yeah. Right. But that's very different from a situation where, for example, someone has picked up, say, avoid blow as a skill. Yes. 
and ends up using it multiple times over the course of an adventure and whatnot, mm -hmm. why would they then need to go and train for however many weeks in order to be able to raise the skill up to rank whatever? Fair. So in that case, and I, I don't say, think it's I don't think it's yeah. I, I don't just, I don't think it's that big a deal if it's something that they have been using and oh, clearly yeah. been putting effort into using mm -hmm. to to necessarily require that. You you might still probably want to look at maybe the total factoring in the training and practice times between the amount of time that you let somebody do that mm -hmm. just to reflect how long it takes to actually get good at something. Fair. But, you know, whatever works for your game, that's that's fine. I don't think there's any kind of problem there. Yeah, I just, uh, whatever rank you already have, take that many days off of the week in training it. If you've already got rank four. Well, I don't even know that you would necessarily, yeah. that you would necessarily need to do that. No. Like, for example, where's my player's guide? Yeah, because I was thinking, if you, like he says, if you already know, you know, a few ranks in it, but it still takes two weeks to learn it, if you've already got it at rank four, take off four days because you've already done, you know, the heavy lifting essentially, and you're just learning some more nuances about it. So take off some time based upon the ranks you already have. What that ratio is, I'm not entirely sure. Well, I, yeah, well, I, that's, I mean, that's certainly one approach. What I would say is that let's say, for example, somebody has rank, has rank three mm -hmm. in a skill. Normally to train to rank four would require four weeks of training. And you would have needed to have have waited at least five weeks before training that if you were at rank three. So yeah. you're looking at, you know, nine weeks, assuming that the character is using it. Mm -hmm. Like that's part of what the training time is, is to, you know, indicate the dedicated time that they are practicing or using that ability. Yeah. If they are using it regularly in the actual game sessions and whatnot, you know, and it's been nine weeks since they bought rank three. Yeah. If you want to let them buy rank four, yeah, that's probably yeah. fine. I don't think there's anything too difficult with that. Yeah. If you're running even less strictly in terms of a calendar of how quickly things are going, you know, then just maybe look at it in terms of story arcs or adventures and kind of base it on that. Or but, maybe, uh, you know, whatever. If you want to keep tick marks of how, how many times it was used successfully, you can shorten your training time. If you did, if you tried it and it was unsuccessful yeah. every single time, you didn't learn it enough. <laughs> you know, there are, there are a number of different ways that you can approach it. And I don't think that as long as you're consistent within your table and you're all yeah. having a good time, I don't think there's necessarily anything really wrong with it. I still think the game should tend to focus more on disciplines and the magical talents that they pick up rather than on skills. Fair. But there are a lot of skills that are particularly useful to pick up if, you know, because of choices that you might make in your character's progression. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, you know, avoid blow is available to nethermancers, but I didn't take it as a talent for Virag, so I picked it up as a skill. Yeah. In part because I've got a spell that enhances it, so I don't need to boost it up that high. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that's that's the kind of thing I, I imagine as long as you're being consistent within your your table group and, um, you know, spending the legend points for it, obviously, then yes. yeah, I think it's fine. I don't think it's it's that big a deal. Fair. So uh, a couple of ideas for you right there. Uh, thank you again, Nick, for a the 10 minute discussion that Josh and I got to have on that. Uh, so from Matt, 
Another fine podcast, guys. A couple of suggestions for the almost all windling group. We had five windlings and one troll, I believe, was somebody submitted the question to us. Uh, oh, yeah. Somebody asked a question a few weeks ago about that. Yes. Uh, one. Go ahead. I have a lot of little creatures. The fuzzy wuzzy effect. I'm not sure if that's creatures to throw at the party or just everyone gets their own little um, tag along, you know, pet. I'm not sure what he means by that. Number two. I'm uh, not one- sure either. <laughs> Have one creature with high armor or a high death rating. The Glabarog is a great creature for this. Throw the Glabarog at the, the whole party of windlings and troll. Thoughts? Yeah, something, something like that. Depending on the group makeup, that certainly could work. Uh, but you need to keep in mind when you're doing something like that, that single creatures, you can run into problems uh, if you're doing a single creature against a group as some of the fights in the earth on podcast game have revealed <laughs> that, you know, we had a Jehuthra that had had some masks added onto it mm. and it went down very quickly because we were, we were all able to gang up, on devote it. our alpha strike stuff on it and got some, got some lucky rolls as well. Obviously uh, that certainly doesn't hurt. No. Yeah. I mean, again, it, the effectiveness of something like a, a single high death rating, high armor creature will depend on the exact makeup of the group. And that's, I mean, increasing the armor value and, and the death rating and the, the unconscious rating of the creature can certainly make it survive longer. Mm-hmm. So that's one option. I, I would prefer the, the more of a, of a multiple creature situation. You know, again, one of the things that you run into with windlings, unfortunately, is their mobility and their ability to fly (laughs) means that sometimes you can have a little bit of trouble dealing with them, that you will end up with situations where you either need to present some kind of rationale for them to not be flying, which is basically bad weather, or you do a lot of ranged type attacks, whether those are spellcasters or archers Mm -hmm. or creatures that have ranged abilities of some sort or fly, you know flying creatures things that can basically overcome the the windling's natural advantage there and doing too much of that can kind of feel unfair <laughs> potentially feel like you're targeting the the windlings unfairly mm-hmm. so it is something that you will want to approach the group and discuss with them and like we said in that it's one of those situations where you need to kind of kind of talk with the group and uh, make sure that everybody's on the same page and understands the concerns and what's going on. Fair, which brings him to point number three. Have other flying creatures attack the group uh, that have the same high physical defense and attack test, but possibly a lower damage that they would inflict. Yeah, yeah. Also you know, possible. we talked about, yeah, we talked about the advice and suggestions for, for balancing encounters and what you might need to do in in... A situation like that is to have a couple of different comparisons that you make. And that is that like, okay, these are the opponents that are going to be kind of looking at the uh, creatures or at the windlings. And here's the opponent that's going to be kind of focused on the ground based person and making sure that you're not overly advantaging or disadvantaging one side or the other. Mm -hmm. Fair. 
So thank you, Matt, for the suggestions. I hope our listener who wrote in previously can use some of those suggestions that you have mentioned. So on to Chain Wolf. Love the name. Absolutely love the name. Hi, guys. I have a couple of hopefully quick questions. One, if a character is multidisciplined and not a caster, is there any reason to increase both threadweaving talents? No. <laughs> except that it's required except that it's required rules as written to if, if you're if you're playing the standard circle advancement scheme mm -hmm. you need to raise your thread weaving talent in order to qualify for your next circle because it is a disciplined talent but from a does it do anything for you in terms of giving you more threads to weave no it doesn't so it, it is kind of a legend point tax uh, a sink a kind of not particularly useful i think the word you're thing the word to have suck hole but <laughs> yeah you know that that's one of those things that the using all talents to advance option is kind of tailor-made for and it might be that what you want to do is perhaps have the character's primary discipline either to just use the all talents to advance option yeah. or have it be that the primary discipline you advances as written mm -hmm. and the secondary or tertiary or whatever advances with all so that you don't, you know, if, if that investment of legend point seems to be a, a bit of a waste, then absolutely, Fair. you know, I can recognize that as being something that that's not, <laughs> that might not make people feel good. Fair. So secondary question following that, can you weave threads using both thread weaving talents for a multidisciplined character who's not a caster. Technically, I I think you I think you can, but the the limit of how many permanent threads you can have is capped based on your highest thread weaving. So while you could say have some talents woven to your first disciplines or have some stuff woven to your first discipline's thread weaving and some woven to your second, there may be items that you know, I don't know of any examples offhand, but it's possible that you could have an item that would require thread weaving from a particular discipline. We try not to limit that in the stuff that we present because we want everybody to potentially be able to use them. But your total limit would still be based on your highest. And if you're actually rolling the tests for it, you probably will want to roll your highest test anyway. So, yeah. There you go. Uh, he gave us some examples, but I think we kind of covered exactly what we're looking for. Uh, question number two. Currently struggling with spirit motivations. For example, what kind of actions would placate an air spirit? If negotiating with an earth spirit or bee spirit, what kind of tasks might they want you to perform? Thank you, Chain. Chain Wolf? Um, so spirit motivations. I don't know. Yeah. What kind of actions would placate an air spirit? <laughs> Well, for elemental spirits, whether you're talking air or earth or whatever, typically they want to see their element in ascendance, especially over the one that is sort of counter or, or in opposition to them. Mm -hmm. So uh, an air spirit would probably want to, I don't know, like I, these are the opportunities where you can just kind of come up with with weird things and if you can maybe justify it somehow that's fine there's a kind of of spirits are are in in one sense alien to our experience and mm -hmm. so it is possible like if you think of some of the the weird stuff that might happen with like 
fairy creatures or that kind of thing mm-hmm. to, to kind of come up with ideas along those lines. You know, look at the potential interactions, if you're talking about elementals, um, some of the potential interactions between the elements and and a, an earth spirit might want to see a, a stream dammed up or things like that. Mm-hmm. Beast spirits, you know, at that point, you're looking at things that are in some respects kind of icons of or archetypes of the animals that they represent. And so would have potentially motivations that are related to the roles that those creatures play in the wild. And then yeah, I'd, the, I'd the say, tasks that... I'd say, no, I'd say like an air spirit would want to disturb other elements. So it would want to, you know, disturb the puddle of the lake or reroute the stream, or it would want to, you know, shake the leaves off of a tree, things like that. So the air spirit would want dominance over something else. So it would want the air to move and be a forced to be reckoned with like a little tiny dust devil or it would, you know, me- messing up somebody's hair who's, you know, preening themselves, whatever, just something along those lines for, uh, since you mentioned air spirit specifically, it was kind of the harder one to nail down, <clears throat> but yeah. And, and if you can't think of anything in particular, you can always have them ask for karma effectively. Yeah. Or, you know, that like that's, I mean, it's, it's kind of a, kind of a, a shorthand, but basically giving them a little bit of, of additional magical power will make that spirit eventually more powerful and more able to do the things that it wants to do. So if, if you're talking about sort of a random spirit that comes up from a summoning that one of your players is doing, mm-hmm. then you might just go with something like that. But if you're dealing with a spirit that is kind of, that is part of a storyline or an adventure art, then maybe think about how the spirit's motivations might relate to what's going on and potentially complicate what the group might be trying to accomplish in the, in the adventure. And, you know, maybe think uh, ahead of time, if you've got an elementalist in your group who is going to be summoning spirits, think about it a little bit and, and see if you can come up with some motivations for spirits ahead of time, sort of generic ones and, and see how they might be able to fit into what's going on. Fair. So I hope Chain Wolf that gets you some ideas. We I think placated that enough. I hope so. <clears throat> Let us know if we didn't. We can we can add more on later. We'll think about it. It'll sit in the back of my mind at least for the next week. Or, or other people <laughs> and 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 we can we could certainly put a call out to our listeners if you oh, have totally. any ideas about motivations or or tasks or such that different spirits might uh, might offer. Feel free to send them in and we'll we can share them if in a If somebody's future already done them. We'd love to hear about them as well. We do love uh, uh, game stories and character stories. We love all of those. <clears throat> love to hear them all. Uh, on to Scott. Greetings and salutations once again. When I wrote my first question, I was on episode 23, and I am happy to report that I am now current on the podcast episodes. Thank you for catching up. Thanks, Scott. We'd like it. Uh, I have a question regarding well, the, the current, thing- current as of the time he sent that in. There have been a couple <laughs> released since then, but yeah, that's still, fine. He's still I'm sure bad. he is. I'm sure he is still current. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I have a question regarding the windling racial ability of astral sight. So shifting gears. Specifically, what does the use of the, this cause the windling in strain? Given that it is a racial ability, my first instinct was to say that it doesn't. However, I have listened to the two. Earthed on actual play podcast recently where the windling character using astral sight did take strain. The rule in the player's guide on page 55 says that all windlings have access to the astral sight talent. So I could see where strain would still apply. However, 
This seems strange since the vision racial ability for other races doesn't seem to have a similar drawback. For example, the heat sight of dwarves and the trolls and the low light vision of elves and orcs just work. Shouldn't this be the same for astral sight for windlings? Still enjoying the podcast. Keep up the good work. Scott of the Antarctic. Um, yeah, the main the main reason for that is that in previous editions back in first edition the windling astral sight ability was separate and distinct from the astral sight talent and the windling ability only caused strain if the windling rolled a one but it couldn't get raised at all it was always if they were using that ability it was always their their straight perception Mm -hmm. and there was another version of of astral sensing that was available as well the wizard spell astral sense which no longer does that Right. So you kind of had these different things. The windling astral sight talent ability now basically gives them access to the talent and for simplicity works the same way as the talent. So the windling would take strain for it. I, I don't know that all that the racial that the that the heat sight and low light vision do is overcome a potential penalty in certain situations. It doesn't grant any kind of additional insight into the the information that the character might learn from perception or, or awareness tests, but Astral Sight does provide additional information. Fair. I could say that the low-light vision is based upon something that actually exists on Earth right now, which is creatures who uh, operate at the bottom of the sea, and they have really large eyes. <clears throat> and so basically the dilation of the pupil for humans uh, on earth right now could actually maybe do something or something along those lines compensate for that. And I know certain amount of snakes are uh, what they call pit vipers. And so they actually have a heat sensing thing. So um, the heat sight of trolls dwarves to do that, I think would be just simply based something along those lines. Um, And my game master actually is a geek and did find out that, uh, heat sight or the Kirlian photography we actually use, the infrared photography we use, cannot see cold-blooded creatures in a room because the the, the their temperature actually mimics the room. There's itself. no there's no temperature gradient. Yeah. yeah, there's no temperature change, so uh, you can't notice them until they move. So if you're <laughs> so he did that just to throw some reptilians at us who were cold-blooded in a cave. So <clears throat> just, the, just so that you know, but I think that a windling accessing the astral plane is a magical thing and being able to see a magical pattern that way would cause the strain. So that's my rationalization. Take it for what you will. I'm done. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so on to Riley. Like many, I picked up on this podcast later on in the cycle as I had kind of delayed transitioning to 4th edition as I was fond of the systems in 3rd and am even fond of Cathay, despite its obvious problems. That being said, though, I am also getting caught up still, so the, it's possible this question has already been asked and I just haven't gotten to it. Right then, onto the said question. When development for 4th edition was started, was there any discussion or consideration about getting rid of the incremental numerical attributes and simply replacing all the base stats with just using the steps? Obviously, the defensive stats curve, mystic armor, and a number of other secondary traits would have to be overhauled dramatically in this process, but it would have dramatically streamlined some parts of the character creation as the attribute value slash derived traits slash steps process would have been deeply simplified 
and you wouldn't have a secondary number. That in many ways is just kind of a mechanical throwback, considering that number literally only exists to generate other derived values. Was this a part of the system that was just determined to be an invi inviolate part of the design and had to stay? Or were there reasons in development that you didn't go that way? Always enjoying the podcast, Riley. So <laughs> it was not something it was not something that I considered while I was doing the early development work on fourth edition for a couple of reasons. One, I was not comfortable enough in my own design space in experience to want to tackle that potentially dramatic a shift in terms of how things were handled. Mm -hmm. um, so it was a little bit of, of uncertainty uh, about how to approach that. It was also out of a desire to not have things be too dramatic a change because of what had been going on in terms of the tail end of third edition and, and announcing fourth and whatnot. I still wanted the game to feel very, to feel familiar and recognizable to folks who might be continuing on like from third edition or who might be returning after first or, or second or whatever. Mm -hmm. So that, so that that was in place. So yeah, there were, I mean, I, I don't know that I, I don't know that I considered it inviolate, uh, that, that it wasn't something that could be changed. I just didn't necessarily at the time feel comfortable enough or see at the time how much of an advantage that that would necessarily provide in conjunction with the other sort of design goals that I had in mind for fourth edition. I have in the past several months of work and answering questions and discussions and, and whatnot been looking at the possibility, not necessarily for Earthdawn, but for my own design that is kind of based on it, mm -hmm. of what would be something that would be a little bit more drastic, still kind of based on the step system, but not having the the attributes and, and kind of stripping down things a little bit. So it is something that I'm considering now. I don't know, you know, hypothetically for a as of yet non-existent fifth edition of Earthdawn, it's possible that something like that might get approached. But no, it it's yeah, I I think I've answered that. I it wasn't something that I was comfortable doing. It wasn't something that I really considered at the time and recognize that from a certain standpoint it does simplify things somewhat. I mean, it does kind of it it would do a few things and require looking at a whole lot of other connected subsystems in order to see how things would flow out from there. Fair. I, I just looked at it as, as, it wasn't really broken. I don't think there was a need to fix it. No, but it, but it does feel a little bit, a little bit old school, a mm -hmm. little bit, you know, again, where, where Earth Dawn was originally developed in some senses as a response to AD&D, yeah. to second edition, that, that still having that kind of flavor to it in a way that isn't really present in Dungeons and Dragons the same way anymore. Yeah. Kind of feels a little bit, a little bit retro and a little bit old school. And I think in some sense, that's part of Earthon's charm mm -hmm. is, is that little bit of, of, of crunchiness. But yeah, I can absolutely recognize, especially as I get into reading things like, uh, and, and look more closely at games at like things based on fate or, 
uh, cortex or whatever yeah. uh, in terms of, you know, simplifying some of some of the way that things work. Fair. Because I know the uh, original version of, of getting those getting those numbers was to roll, you know, 3d6 on a range of 3 to 18 ish. And that the all the races now are based upon that set of numbers. There's a baseline 10 for humans, and everybody else is a variation of that based upon their dexterity, toughness, strength, perception, willpower, and whatnot. And so you have to get those numbers and have those racial distinctions, racial distinctions, so that you can therefore get those proper step numbers and go from there. So I I tend to look at it as more foundational, right. but that's me. Well, the, I mean, the, the, the thing that comes up, and we kind of talked about this on and off with the the discussions that we had in earlier episodes about the different races mm-hmm. and some of the issues that can come up with regards to representation and what races might be drawn as a parallel to and all that sort of thing. And is there really a place in modern game design in our goals as designers and developers who maybe want to be more open and inclusive and whatnot? Mm-hmm. Is there really a need for these little attribute adjustments, right? Like plus one in the grand scheme of how much does that really do in terms of the overall mechanics of the system, but there are the derived things off of it, like defense ratings and and health ratings and whatnot. Yeah. Is that like, is there another, obviously there are other ways to do it because other games do it in different ways. Mm -hmm. And is that something that is so, I, I don't, I'm not really convinced that something like that is necessary for for earth dawn but that's something that i have sort of come to over the past several years as i've worked on the game and gotten a lot more into Mm -hmm. discussions with following discussions with other designers and and whatnot in terms of what is it that we're trying to do what are our goals does something like that really serve a purpose Fair enough. Uh, but I think, yeah, you're right. <clears throat> that would have to be a complete overhaul down on 5th edition, which I know is not on your radar <laughs> anytime soon. So, or, or another game entirely that is sort of based off of that same yeah. core step foundation that, you know, is there a way to do what that same kind of thing without needing to base it on like a step, like a... <laughs> pun not intended, a step removed from attribute values to steps to whatever. Is there a way to just go right to like that step value? And basically at at that point, the differences between the, you know, the attribute values as they are between the races kind of goes away. Like the need to have those there because there's not a lot of gradient. There's not a lot of Mm -hmm. variety in terms of those base attribute stats that you have. Like everybody you know, tends to end up with like fives to sevens, yeah. the occasional step four, but like step four to seven in terms of that, like, isn't when you start getting into talents and skills and whatnot being added on there, the attribute, especially as characters advance, becomes less and less important in the overall scheme of a character's power and ability. Yeah. The other flip side of that, though, is that you end up with name giver races like the windlings and obsidian and to a slightly lesser extent trolls who are on the extremes of the continuity of racial ability yeah right if somebody wants to play a windling what do you do like how do you limit their step how do you determine like there's a, there are a whole lot of considerations to come into play like where do you 
get into that. Do you even worry about it? Do yeah. you just kind of hand wave it and say, if you are going to be playing an Obsidiman, presumably you are going to be taking a really high strength. Yeah. And just leave it at that. Um, so there, there are a lot of considerations that would come into to play there. And, you know, I, I think there is an expectation for Earth Dawn, especially for at least for for veteran fans of Earth Dawn mm-hmm. to come to that and have that familiarity, the way that things are put together there, that with a, a new design, like, again, based off of that kind of stepsystem idea, but not wedded to all of the legacy that the 25 plus years of Earth Dawn have along with it, that would be a lot more willingly accepted mm-hmm. because because of that. Fair enough. <clears throat> okay. Uh, Riley, fantastic question to ask. Um, I don't think it had ever been delved into that deeply before. So I appreciate you asking that. So on to the last email of the day uh, from Dustin. Hi, gents. While I'm asking this question within the context of the discussion of poison onset timing, it has a much wider relevance to the duration of effects of many other types in Earth Dawn. When, during the resolution of a round, should poison resistance and effect tests be made? For instance, he's got a couple of examples here. If a poison has an onset time of three rounds and is administered somewhere in the middle of round one, should we make the initial resistance roll at the end of round three, at the end of round four, at the beginning of poisoned character's turn in round three, at the beginning of the poisoned character's turn in round four, during the poisoner's turn in round three, what if they're no longer active? During the poisoner's turn in round four, what if they're no longer active? During round three, at the initiative count at which the poison was administered during round one, or during round four, at the initiative count at which the poison was administered during round one. I'd assume further interval rolls would be made according to the same logic. Based upon my reading of the rules, I think number one is the simplest and proper answer here, but that's not at all obvious since there is no end of round, air quotes, phase to Earth Dawn's combat procedure. He'd love a clear answer. Thank you, Dustin. Um, we might get into the weeds on this one. Uh, okay. <laughs> the way that... <laughs> that's fine. I-, I can see it being handled two ways. Personally, the way that I would handle it would be to handle the poison rolls at the same time that the character who is poisoned, that is to say the target, that is to say the victim, to handle it at the same time that they are acting in their round, regardless of 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 what their initiative might be. Like you get hit, you know, you get hit by the ghoul. Um, and so when your you know, when your turn comes up, it is that is when you handle the resistance rolls and the effect of whatever might happen. Yeah, that's the way that I would probably handle it, because then it's linked to the character that is being affected. And so you handle all of their stuff kind of at the same time. And it is an instant onset time. The other well, whether it's whether it's instant onset time or or whatever, uh, like okay. in this case, right, like in this case, what I would do is I would say it would be what he had as option three on his list in this example. It's a poison onset of three rounds. Right. He gets hit. That's the first round. Two rounds later. So what would be sort of round three on that poisoned character's turn, Mm -hmm. they make the resistance test. And if failed, then they suffer the effects of whatever. And that gets all resolved on on their turn, sort of at the beginning of their action. Because it doesn't really depend upon what anybody else is doing. It depends upon what, when that character was affected. So if it's three rounds of onset time, it's what happens to you or what you can do about it 
on that right. third I round. mean, you can get into some weird stuff with regards to because initiative might be high one round and low the next and things like that, where the actual amount of time that is happening might seem weird. I, I so like I can understand the the concern there. Like, oh, I got poisoned. I acted. Like, oh, because I rolled really low on my initiative, I acted yeah. on count two mm-hmm. this round, the next roll, the next round, my thing, and I, like, the, the poison took effect. The next round, I, I blew up my initiative, died three times, and now I'm acting on 21. Yeah. Uh, oh, I'm immediately getting affected by the poison again if it's a, you know, next round or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I can understand how that might seem a little bit weird. So, so personally, I tend to, I tend to handle it when the character who is poisoned is taking their turn. They need to make the rolls relating to the to the poison and whatnot. Yeah, that okay. makes sense. The other option is to handle all of that stuff at the end of the round. In this case, it would be what he had as I would handle it as as option one. He got poisoned on round one, mm-hmm. but it's a three round onset time. So round one, round two, round three. At the end of round three, then you make the the resistance rolls and stuff like that. Yeah. Again, like one of the we we've, we've talked about this with some questions in the past about initiative and like cyclical initiatives and how different roles can mean people are acting out of turn. And how do you count the duration of a spell? Does it, is it based on the targets or blah, blah, blah. Like, do they get a proper number of actions? And I think as long as you are consistent about it at the table, understanding that like the purpose of say a buff spell is to provide a benefit to the character for a certain amount of time. Yeah. Um, making sure that they are getting at least some benefit from it and not having a, oh, the, you know, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. And so I think either handling it on the poisoned character's turn in on their initiative count or at the end of the turn, then handle everybody's stuff at the end. I think those are probably the 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 best way. Um, and that unless you're dealing with a special case like ghouls, for example, where their poison goes inert if they are killed, mm-hmm. you don't need to worry about the the poisoner being necessarily active. But if you want to handle it during their turn, you know, you do run into the problem of, well, what if the poisoner is no longer there? <clears throat> Hence, you connect it to the, the character that is affected by that. And it makes a little bit more sense in terms of being able to keep it going. Yeah, fair. Uh, I know. So- I would I would not. I I would like his last two options, seven and eight, where you are keeping track of what initiative count on that the initial round that the poison was administered on. Mm-hmm. That's way too fiddly for me. I wouldn't <laughs> do that at all. Fair. I, I agree with the let's, let's make it easy on the game master as well, because they have enough going on on their side yeah. of the screen. Um, but I also know that. So in some cases, it's a magically based poison, air quotes. And so if that creature dies between puncture and onset time right doesn't matter but i think it's for the chemical right. version. yeah i mean that's <laughs> for the chemical version where yeah, it's in like, your bloodstream like the, different story yeah the, the kakofian the the ghoul poison is kind of a special case that has its own rule about it going inert if the ghoul that poisoned you is killed yeah but for the most part like as a general rule i would i would say handle it either Mm-hmm. on the on the character who is poisoned turn and have and count the round that they actually got injected as one of the three of the the, the interval count yeah. right three in, in the example mm-hmm. or at the end of the round handle all of the poison stuff at the same time but still counting the round that that the person got affected as round one of that interval period fair so if it's an interval of three and they get if they get 
targeted by the poison on round one, then they would make their first test on round three, and then round six, and round nine, and round 12. Yeah. And go from there. Totally. So, um, like most things that Josh has that really can be summed up, keep it simple. <laughs> I understand. Uh, Try to. Yeah, yeah, I understand really wanting to get it nailed down to a specific formula that can be applied every single time, but really logic dictates a bunch and keeping it really simple makes the game just go a whole lot faster. So to Josh's point, yeah, that's two best ways. Yeah. And, and anytime you start dealing with a, with a, a duration, extended duration timing kind of situation, like you need to kind of make that decision and look at the consequences that it has in terms of what it does. This is why like the, the, Generally speaking, spell effects, short-term ones, will last until the end of the next round. Yeah. Time. Combat Combat in RPGs is broken down the way that it is simply to manage everything that is going on. Yeah. It is not necessarily intended to be a sequence of events the way that you have in, say, like a, a video game RPG where things are based on what where you have that kind of turn-based situation. It's merely a way of managing the, the the situation and the amount of time that is actually taking place. A lot of things are really more kind of simultaneous than that. Mm-hmm. And so other, I mean, other like spells tend to end at, go to, to end at the end of a round. There isn't a formal like end of round phase. Yeah. But they tend to end at the end of the round. So maybe it would make sense. Like that's when you're incrementing down the durations of spells. Maybe it would make sense for the way that your combat handling flow works to handle poisons and other durations at the same time. You know, like you have the effect go, the the duration goes into effect. And then at the end of each round, you kind of increment or decrement the the remaining durations and handle any roles associated with those things. I could also see whatever furthers the story along if it's. If it helps the story to say, well, resist the poison first, then you can act or, you know, resist the act first and see if your blood, if, if your adrenaline's racing that much and the poison gets into you that much faster, you know, do it at the end of the round. I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. You know, I mean, <laughs> I, 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 I think that that's way. a situation. Well, I think that's a situation where you have the, where you don't make the mechanical decision based on what you want the narrative to be. But you kind of steer the narrative based on what the mechanical results are. Yeah. And as long as you're consistent and you pick something mm-hmm. and you go with that, then you kind of flow the, 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 the narrative that you are weaving for a, a combat encounter or something like that from that standpoint. Yeah. Yeah. If all of your teammates fall in round two and you're waiting for the poison onset in round three, maybe it's more heroic to fight off the poison first and then get back in the fray. I don't know. I'm just. Depends on what happens in that middle round. <laughs> so just just tossing it out there. Uh, but no, uh, really, to Josh's point, keep it simple, be consistent, as always, and, and kind of go from there. So that wraps up kind of our last... <laughs> I mean, it's, it's not simple, hence the question. <laughs> but, you know, if you are... If if you are a game master, find the the method that works for you in terms of keeping track of the flow of events and what's going on in combat and all the stuff you have to keep track of, mm-hmm. and find the the however you are managing the the flow of the battle and the numbers and the the statistics and stuff that you have to keep track of, and find out where in your flow it makes the most sense to have these notes so that you can resolve them, then go from there. 
again, I've given what my top two suggestions would be, and I can see the advantage advantage or disadvantages of handling them that way. Yeah. But good on you for proposing eight possibilities. I mean, you really, really thought about that one. Not going to lie. So yeah. I give you credit for breaking it down that exact. Um, sorry to dash your hopes. Uh, but yeah, let's keep it as simple as you possibly can. Otherwise, uh, folks, that'll about wrap us up for this episode. We've got about a minute or so left to uh, get a couple things in. Um, if you have any questions for us at all, we love getting them. We love hearing your character stories. We love hearing about what's going on with your game. Uh, feel free to email us at edsgpodcast at gmail.com. It's limitless. Give us the longest emails you can. We'll truncate as necessary. Give us short emails and nice questions and offer up anything else you want for advice. We'll take it and, you know, talk about it as much as we possibly can. There are many social media platforms you can reach us on. But first, I want to say, I was still, we put out a call a few episodes ago about uh, hearing from our female listeners, and I don't think we have. So I'm asking again. I know there's a couple of, uh, by our uh, uh, stats on our webpage, we've got a couple of female listeners out there. I would love to hear from you and your experiences with the game. Even if you don't want us to read it on the air, read them on the show, yeah. that is absolutely fine. You know, just let us know that that's the case and, and we will just kind of have it just for us. But we absolutely would, would love to hear from folks. Yeah. Because uh, I know there's some women playing in the, in the live play podcast especially. that I've been listening to. We've got so some. There's. Yeah, there are some. We'd love to hear from you, ladies, women. By all means, send us send us your stuff. So, any further thoughts this week, Josh? No, I think that um, that just about wraps us up here. I hope everybody's doing well. We are in the the the, the sliding down to the tail end of the year bit of things. We're in the fourth quarter of the longest decade on record. <laughs> 2020 is the longest decade of the year. So, yeah. This this year this year has been a hell of a decade. <laughs> so, we hope you're all doing well wherever you are, whatever you might have going on. We certainly appreciate you continuing to listen to the show and sending us your questions and feedback and uh making us recognize that we are not just gabbling off into the void, which happens. But join us uh next time for another conversation. Uh, reach us on Twitter, uh, join the Earth on Guild on Facebook, join the FASA Games Discord. You know where to find us. Check out the show notes. And uh, that will take care of us here yeah. for another week. And we're out of here otherwise. So until the next time, folks, it is time for you to go make your own legend. Good night, everybody. <laughs>